You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys. Welcome back to the Land and Legacy Podcast. Adam here. I'm your host uh, on this podcast this week. Um, you can jump over to podcast number two for the week with Matt and I as we close out the plant category podcast with trees. So we talk all kinds of different trees and how they can be used in your land management strategy. And so we appreciate you guys uh, being there and following along as we close out that series. We'll be ready to jump into a new series most likely next week. All right, but on this week's podcast, before we get started, we want to send a shout-out to one of our partners to help make it possible, Stratton Seed Company out of Stuttgart, Arkansas. You can check them out at gostrattonseed.com. We talk about them a lot in the spring and the fall and throughout the year as we discuss using food plots as overall habitat tools, land management, hunting strategies, all things. Um, That's where we discuss the Legacy Blend, Heritage Blend, the Roundup Ready Forage Soybeans, uh, very affordable prices, great products. So check them out as we, uh, you know, deer season closes out for a lot of guys. And I know that there's a lot of people starting to think about food plots. So uh, especially with frost season, season coming up. Um, he was here last year and he's, or he was here last week and he's here again this week. Chainsaw Chad. Yeah, didn't, didn't realize I'd be on two weeks in a row. Didn't realize it, but. Things change, um, and fortunately happily, for you, things things change. Yeah. So if you guys follow our social media page, you saw that Chad was able to harvest a nice buck um, on January 14th. Uh, 
the day before Missouri bow season closed out. Um, and there's a there's several different things to talk about, um, little tidbits. Um, I'm going to kick it off, Chad, with one of the strangest things about this hunt, and I'm going to have to stand corrected uh, on this because I've said it on the podcast, and now I'm not saying that, whoa, I was dead wrong, but this is, well... You know, I, I've said it on multiple podcasts, the caveman mindset to where, or caveman mentality where caveman saw fire and he said fire was good. And so a lot of times we see deer and cedars and we say cedar's good, or we see deer eating whatever, kudzu, and we say kudzu's great deer food. And in this case, I have said for years that fescue, deer don't eat fescue. But in the process of caping this deer out, fescue fell out of his mouth. <laughs> chewed, chewed up fescue. But we'll also say this deer went downhill significantly. Oh, man. He was bad shape. Gun season, which that also ties into he was still following does on January 14th. Mm-hmm. So probably a combination because there's good food in the area yeah but it was a distance from where he was bedding yeah and 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 so like a a good ways i mean a a pretty good clip and i think it goes with chad just the whole strategy for the farm um in the fact that like it's 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 tough on the deer up there there's food everywhere um, because of the way the, the operation is ran. But it is uh, pretty hard for them to uh, to have bedding and feeding close. Yes, especially it's, this part of the farm. There's certain areas that have it a little better, but this part of the farm is is generally a last 30 minutes of daylight hunting. Yeah. It, it is, <clears throat> especially if you're if you're on the food, yeah. which late season most people like to do. You like to sit on the big crop fields or something and watch 20 deer come out and talk about all the deer you saw and all the deer activity. But this place, I mean, it's, it's a... If you do that, you're not going to see, to see any deer until the last 30 minutes of shooting light. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's... And probably not see the bucks. And and almost guarantee it that you won't see the bucks. And I, that's part of that's part of this week's podcast in, in relation to just the fact that this is not your every... I mean, there's probably a lot of guys who hunt farms just like this. And my heart goes out to them because... Even though you may have the appearance that, whoa, this is going to be hog heaven here. We're going to have, we've got alfalfa, we've got corn, we've got cover crops, we've got all the food. But lo and behold, my goodness, the deer are nocturnal. And how many times, like, th- this farm is is why I believe cover is more important at killing mature deer than food. 
and I'll take it to, you know, I'll, I'll go to my grave unless something changes and something, it's always changing. I mean, I always said deer don't eat fescue. Now, I don't know if this deer was able to choke down. We didn't cut into his stomach and look, but if he was able to actually eat fescue on a regular basis, I'd be shocked. I think it's more a product of, it's one of the few things green and shoot, he probably could have taken a bite and said, hmm, that's not going to work. But lo and behold, that's when you harvested him and that was in his mouth. It's like, you know, if there was gravel in his mouth, I wouldn't say, well, I guess they're eating gravel now. I would be Um, like, that's very strange. That can't be a normal thing. I don't know why that's there. To me, this, this hunt and this farm are a, because it's so open, we can observe the deer patterns, but it's a good, it's a, it's a good, like, thing to give us a perspective of a lot of times when we see deer on a say we put cameras on a crop field on scrapes and like man the deer are nocturnal mm-hmm. well it may not be that the deer aren't moving until last light yeah. it may be that the deer are bedding a half or three quarters of a mile away because that's the decent cover that they feel is secure and they're just essentially migrating every evening yeah and that's what we figured out on these deer. Well, Chad, I don't know if you know this, but I'm looking at it on, on on X right now. And from where we believe the deer are bedding to where we know they are feeding, it is three quarters of a mile as a crow flies. Now, or I shouldn't say as a crow flies, direct line. And you know what that means? If I draw a box from where basically boundaries on the property and I make a a square, 160 acres, just your normal, you know, plat map and you can see 160 acre parcels that are square. If you take 160 acres, put it in a square and stick that between where this deer was feeding and where he was bedding, where he's bedding is still north of, of this 160 acres. And he was traveling that to feed. Yeah. Isn't that insane just to think about? Like, there's a lot of guys that hunt properties less than 160 acres. And this deer, oh, it's open terrain. Less than 160. And it's, I mean, it's open terrain. And this deer is literally bedding. And then as he hits the property, basically, he's walking across 160 acres because he's going from northwest corner to southeast corner uh in a meandering path but that's still over 160 acres and and it's, and it's almost a mile uh from where he, it, it it is a mile from where we believe he was bedded to where he was feeding and he was doing that almost every night yeah and it's not like it's like you say open ground it's not like it's like ground that has no disturbance or nothing on it or kind of old field this is cattle pasture that has cows on it right now like yeah. it had cows on it they were crossing in amongst the cows to get to this what what they were feeding on was a it's a cover cropped cornfield that was cover cropped in turnips and wheat and then there's rye in the center because they ran out of wheat seed and mm-hmm. it's really good turnips and they were essentially the does were going every night they were going every night and that was what like 
I guess if you want to get into the start on the strategy of this, of how we figured all of this out, is that, are you ready to start into that? Yeah, sure. Sure. So, so we got like one set of pictures on the, of this deer in the summer. That was it. Like one time he wasn't even, his tines weren't even formed up. He had really tall brow tines and a, the start of a really good frame. And we're like, boy, that's a really good deer. Never had another picture until the week before gun season. He showed up on an alfalfa field. And that's the thing. There's alfalfa all over in here. And that was the first picture we had of him since. Yeah. Was chasing does or checking does first couple weeks of November. Yep. And then I don't think we had him again until late season on that same alfalfa field, which is a, oh, we've, we've hunted it last year. We didn't have much on it late season, but the last couple of years, this is, it's an alfalfa field that had the deer we called snakes was a, there's a, it's a brushy field that they bed around and then cut over into the South alfalfa. And when we picked him up, he was going to that field. Like, okay, he's starting the pattern that, that the mature deer have done every winter. Any of them that are in that area, they use that same pattern. And the very day that I went up to go and hunt that field, there were the neighbor's cows all over the alfalfa field. Yeah. So instant game plan change. Luckily, I'd already found the, the turnips down on the south side, and I put a camera down there. And we pretty well, I went back to hunt the farm. And then that next week, the deer showed up on the turnips. The first time we had him down there, he shows up. It's like, all right, his pattern's changed. Now we start getting regular. We know we know kind of what he's doing if he's still betting in the same area. So yeah. I went in on a day, and there was there was another I think four and a half year old deer that I would have shot too. It wasn't was this size, but he was a big body deer, just kind of a crazy rat. But that was, we put the camera down there purely to check out and see if there were any mature deer coming to that field. Cause we hadn't hunted it, hadn't run a camera down there all year until late season. Yeah. And so then I went in with a muzzle loader on a whim, a day with some snow on the ground I went in midday and checked tracks to see if they were going from where they had previously bedded in years past, if they just changed and were going to that, that turnip patch. And sure yeah. enough, there's deer tracks all going across this giant pasture, go into the turnips and wheat. Yep. I'm like, all right, that settles it. I know what they're doing now. It's just waiting on the, waiting on the weather. And I had the weather that day with a whistleblower that, uh, kind of i got so swarmed with deer i rushed a shot missed this very deer yeah but just it just solidified that they're doing exactly what we thought they were doing it's just now i'm having to now we had to figure out how to get it get within bow range of the deer instead of with a muzzleloader yeah waiting on the right weather which and, which is like the opposite of what you want to do late season <laughs> Oh, Mm -hmm. not only am I going to have to continue to fight that each day it's closer and closer to the end of season, but 
oh yeah, by the way, now we're going to have to go down to 40 yards and in rather than 150 and in. Yeah, because this is not like, we call it the turnip patch, but it wasn't like an acre or two. It's yeah. a it's a significant uh, cornfield that they plant for silage. So it's a big field. Yeah. And then, I mean, what helped was there. this area, had it, it doesn't have a lot of mature timber anyway. The, the mature timber is very scattered. There are a lot of turkeys. So, and they've had a very low acorn crop this year. So a combination of that, the deer were hitting the fields very hard. So we had that in our favor. That was, that was honestly probably the biggest thing they had in our favor was the deer were hungry and were having to go to the fields. They couldn't just stay in the timber and eat acorns if, if it was a long distance to food. So I went in, finally had, I mean, muzzleloader season was essentially two weeks after muzzleloader season was the end of the season. And I had hunted, well, I guess one of the things, I'd hunted the farm a couple of days before that and had bucks grouped up and fighting and still kind of pushing around. And so I brought rattling antlers with me even. Because so I'm like, if they're still doing that, and I'd watch this buck fight deer during muzzleloader season. And I'm like, if I have to, I can maybe get him a little closer. And, I mean, I I just started to rattle, and I saw him. He wasn't coming to the horns. He was just, I happened to pick the right spot, and he was coming down the fence line towards me to cross the fence and, and go through the field at the within my shooting range. But, yeah. That's and still following those. I had I had a, a little buck come through, come the, the wind. I'm, I'm essentially in, a, in kind of a bowl, kind of a low area. So the wind was blowing, luckily, pretty hard, but it would die at times and kind of swirl around. And I was luckily had a fully charged Dozonics and running it because the little like fork and horn came through early and got nervous and I thought it was all over. And finally the wind picked up again and he calmed down and walked on and that saved me. Cause then the does came through and by the time they got to that same area, the buck was already crossing the fence and coming in. Hmm. So he was just following do you think the it was, do you think you rattled him in or just, uh, he just, no, no, I tickled the horns together two or three times, but like the, the little buck came out on the other side of the field. This is a probably a hundred yard wide field. He came out on the other side of the field yeah. and started to walk. There was a, I will say too, there was a big front coming in the next day. It snowed and was really windy the next day. So I, I have a feeling that really had the deer on their feet, but yeah. he came out on the other side and I kind of told myself that night, if I'm going to kill this deer, it's got to be tonight because they're not going to move tomorrow. Yeah. And he came out on the far end of the field, and I thought, well, here we go. I'm Which, watch all the deer. you know, uh, not to inter- interrupt you, but there's a for us, I think so many times, you know, growing up, I, I remember there just being this amazing feeling of, oh, it's going to be snowing tonight. Their deer are going to be on their feet. And in our area, it's just that snow, heavy snow and wind is just so abnormal that it's like it shuts everything down. 
And I, I know, like, you can watch Iowa in places where it's like we've got a big front coming in. It's like snowing and there's deer in the field. And those deer are just used to that. And, yeah. you know, in my days of filming up there, it was like they're just used to that. Down here they're not. And so you give me a chance, like, late season, I would rather hunt the days where it might be a little bit warmer or there might be a front coming in, but not the day the front's coming in, the day before that. So two days before yeah. the front hits. Or or even when it's been really, really cold for a little spell, I want to hunt the first warm front, the first day that it actually kind of warms up because it's like then they get out and they're like, ugh, let's put that behind us and move. Yeah, and that's what, like, like the, you could tell on the cutties, that's one of the things with the cutty link cameras we've noticed. I mean, where it's real time, you can sit there and it's like, well, and I noticed that night after when it did, when the wind was blowing and it was snowing, they didn't move. Yeah. We didn't get hardly any pictures that night. No. Nope. And it was, and it's one of those where it's like, okay, yeah, that's, it's about right. When it's the front really moving in and it's snowing and windy and stuff, they're, they're bedded up. Yep. And so I was thinking while I'm in the stand, like, it's got to happen tonight or it's probably not going to happen because the next night was the last day of the season. Yep. Well, the little buck came out on the other side and was walking down the edge and just some thinking, okay, well, they're all going to go that side tomorrow night. I guess I go over there. He turned and looked back towards the fence where the deer had came from muzzleloader hunting and turns and is looking like he sees deer and goes to the fence line. And, and the fence is too brushy. I can't see anything, but he just acts like there's deer in the fence line. And then he turns and comes down the fence towards me like he's walking alongside a group of deer. He's the whole time like watching them, but will walk and kind of nibble around on stuff. But it's like he's walking along beside other deer waiting on them to come over to him. Yeah. And then he disappeared. And that's when I started to rattle and then saw antlers through the brush. He's like, whoa, nope, I'm not doing that. I don't want him even looking for me. Yeah. He's already heading my way. And that's... The does came across, the, the little buck came within 20 yards. The does came across, and they were within 50 to 30 yards, kind of meandering around, and then he came through at 40 is where I finally got the shot. Huh. And if the wind, late season, especially here with the timber and stuff, it seems like any noise carries so much. You have to be very careful in the, when it's cold and stuff. It, it just seems like they're on edge anyway and any little noise. And the wind completely died 40 yards, and it was. I knew how the buck had reacted, so I knew as soon as I got a shot, I needed to take it because there was no telling what five, five does would do in that same area. Mm-hmm. So when he stepped to 40, I pulled the trigger, and I don't know if it was a combination of maybe I shot a little right, he moved too, and it hit him like in the front part of the back ham. Yeah, not where you want to hit Absolutely terrible shot. And I'm like sick just as soon as it hits. Like, oh, no. Yeah. He runs over through the fence, comes by me, and then stops like 70 yards off to my north where I can st- – it's it's so open up there I can still see him. He's just kind of in the brush. And I thought I could see like blood going down his leg. I'm like, huh. I may have gotten that some of the like femoral artery or something in there. I'm, I may not be in as bad a shape as I think. And he takes about four or five steps and I see his back legs get wobbly and he fell over and then gets back up, looks around and does the same thing again. 
And that's when I called you and was like, Hey, here's what, here, here's the whole story. Here's what's went on asking your thoughts as well. And we decided to give him a good amount of time before we ever went in there, even though there was a good chance that I had caught caught the femoral artery and he was going to bleed out right there pretty quick. Yeah. So we gave him, what was it, almost five hours? Something like that, yep. And, you know, when you called me and told me that's where it was, oh, uh, it was like, ah, back cam, it's terrible. And it's just like, that's a terrible shot. Um, Harry, you're alive. You're a terrible shot. I think of that every time I think of somebody making a terrible <laughs> shot. I think of Dumb and Dumber. But uh, anyway, I think of just how, you know, it's not ideal. But then again, there's a lot of deer that get hit in the back cam that if it, if the 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 broadhead is of a certain choosing, which I tend to like two-blade expandables because of so many situations like this right here. Where it's like, well, it's back, but um, there's a lot of stuff to cut back there in that back ham. You either have femoral artery going along the spine, which drops down, of course, um, into the ham. And then you also have a lot of a lot of veins or arteries going to the testicles. And I've seen deer, a really big deer, actually, uh, in Iowa get hit right above the testicles. And that thing was dead within a couple hundred feet. 100 yards um and so i'm like i i honestly i I would never tell people to shoot but (laughs) in the back hams but i've seen a lot of deer die pretty quickly getting hit in the back hams or just in front of the back hams um if given the amount of time they need um and so which is never i almost unless i see the deer go down and i'm seeing that it's dead dead and i know the shot was good I don't typically go after, I at least give them an hour and a half, regardless. I've said this once, i said it a hundred times. I think a lot of deer that we lose as hunters, it's because we go in too soon looking for them. And we need to just always give them a couple hours. We've been been guilty of that many times growing up. Oh, my goodness. When you have no patience, you shoot a deer, and 30 minutes to an hour later, you're in there walking around looking for it. You probably one-lunged the deer. And yep. you're just running it all over the country. Uh-huh. Yep. So And so, and that it, it made it different that I watched the deer fall over. Yeah. I mean, we were pretty certain he was probably going to be dead, but knowing how bad the shot was and where it was at, we're like, you know, we've got, we've got time. You were, you were an hour away. So it's yeah. like, okay, just, I'll go get something to eat. You take your time, come up later. We'll I mean, go in. To, to, for so many guys that can probably relate to me is I was sitting there looking at two little kids and one of them who's just turned two and is going, who's getting ready to eat her dinner. I'm like, it's going to be a while because I don't want to put my wife in the situation where she has to put this kid to bed and still hold the new, hold the five month old. It just makes my life a whole lot easier if I can at least get the oldest into bed before I do anything. And so <laughs> I basically said, I'm going to put my oldest Maya into bed and then, um, uh, then I'll head that way. And, uh, you were like, okay. Which worked out well. I mean, that was what the plan was. It's like, okay, that gives us plenty of time, gives him, gives him plenty of time to lay there and die. If by chance something wasn't what I saw, 
and I, I, I thought after I heard I saw him fall the second time, I, I did see him through. By then, it was pretty late. I did see him like head up looking around. Yeah. And then I heard like brush busting and like leaves crunching, and thought, well, that could have been him thrashing, but it could have been him getting up and and running out of there. Mm-hmm. So that was what just to be safe. I'm like, oh yeah, works great. I'll go get some meat. We'll come back. We'll we'll get here late, and go in and and look and. And then part of our other strategy was we didn't end up blood trailing him because I'd seen him fall there. We decided with the wind blowing, he ran with the wind. So yeah, rather than go in and follow the blood trail, because I'd seen it fall down, we went around the other way. And this is another cattle pasture. It's just a little more grown up. We hit walked in and hit a cow path to walk right to him and just watch the Onyx map to see when we got close and then shine a light to see if we could see him. Yep. And it was I think like that's an important thing too, to can... note that how many times is, you know, it's just ingrained in us. When you shoot a deer, you go to first, you, you go to initial contact of the shot and you start trailing the blood. And when you can't find any more blood, then you, Start sprawling out and do a body search, or until you find more, until you find more blood. And there's been just a ton of people that do that, and we've done that a lot. But there comes a time where if the wind is bad, you need to kind of just step off and just go. This is the last place I saw him. Let's uh, let's not let our wind just kind of blow down in there on him. Let's come in from a different direction, knowing that this was the last place. And it really only works when you know where he's gone. Um, And by that I mean, like, we knew there was cattle pasture. We knew he was most likely going to be in in some of these trees or across the valley in another grove of trees. And so it wasn't just blindly going in, following dry leaves and crunching all over the place. There was a little bit of, like, okay, we're going to get real particular on this and we're going to just, like, follow these trails and say, okay, if we can get in here and and feel like we can sneak and keep the wind out of the area that we know he went, then we can totally do this. And it was that was definitely the situation to not have like five of your buddies go in oh, charging man. in a bunch of spotlights and talking and just blast into the area to go look for this deer. This oh, was man. a me, you, because we had the camera like all right when we crept in there well i like, shot most of the recovery in uh night shot which any of you sony guys or shoot a lot of those cameras have it but basically an infrared camera to where everything looks green and it's because we didn't have any lights on for a, a majority of the of the sneak in yeah that's and i will say too if i hadn't have seen that deer fall down we wouldn't have been there that night yeah I mean, we said that from the start. If I hadn't seen it fall down, it would have been a next morning deal, for sure. Yeah. There was no way we were going in there if I hadn't seen that. Knowing the shot, it was like, well, he fell down. I think we're good. We can sneak in, and if he's alive, if we peek up and see him through the light and see he's alive, I'll come back in the morning. Yeah. And we got just about to where I had said, okay, he's he's right in here. I think we shine light. The second time that I hit the light, we saw him. Yeah. was like, looked, nothing, walked about 20 yards, hit the light, and went, oh, there he is right there. Yep. 
and yep. had been about five hours. And this place has a, it's got a lot of turkeys, but it also has a lot of coyotes. Yeah. And they had already found the deer within five hours. Yep. And but. yeah, had eaten a little bit on the back end. Not, not a lot of, not a lot of damage, but I figure we ran them off of the deer. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. I think so too. And so, uh, it just, uh, um, <laughs> you know, it's just part of it. When you give a deer plenty yeah. of time, you do run that risk. Um, but then you also run the risk of going in too soon and jumping them. So yeah, kind of a give and take there. And we tend to always rely on the side of, of giving a little bit longer than they might actually need. And, and you can't, with, without, without things. fear of spoiling the meat. And like when it's too hot, like we don't let yeah. them just lay and, because I mean, we we never waste them, but at the same time, it's like it's kind of wasteful if you get in there too early and you run them three miles and they die of an infection. Yeah, and you never find it. Yeah, and that's the thing. A lot of those times, you never find the deer, or you might yeah. find bones. Yeah, but I mean, and and you tell me, did we one time after we found the deer say we got to come kill coyotes now? No, not a one. Not not one I mean, time. It's that's that's what they do. They find dead animals. They're and scavengers. That's, yeah, that's that's their life. I don't fault them. Yeah, they did what they were designed to do, and yep. uh, that's just the nature of the beast. But um, you know, I think one of the big t- one of the biggest takes away takeaways of this whole thing is we've hunted this farm for several years uh three or four years now four for no 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 four. way longer than that four or five um because we were hunting uh, at my old before land legacy started we were hunting this farm so that would have been 20 at least 2014 so um or 2015 so um yeah uh yeah 2015 i think and so uh yeah, um, we've been it's there, and, and, and it's it's one of those farms where they're trying to really maximize their cattle operation. So not many acres go left. If they own it, they're trying to figure out how to make that acre produce or create something for their cattle so they can make money. And so because of that, there's lots of alfalfa fields, and, and there's plenty of cover crops, but there's also not much thick thick cover. And... Uh, and and frankly, not even thick cover, just cover in general. And so, a lot of times, the deer bedded right in these little pockets or on the neighbors, and and uh, you know, in in very odd and very strange places. And so, yeah. uh, this farm is like we used to hunt the crops because that's where you could see a ton of deer. But it's like these aren't the deer that I really am hunting. Um, they're somewhere else. And it's it's been a significant learning process for oh for sure for two guys growing up in timber country to go to predominantly open country but not in like this is still it's it's a lot of open ground and there are crop stuff but it's completely different than going to northern missouri where it's a bunch of crops and little fingers of trees and stuff yeah this is like a completely different animal than any of it mm-hmm. it's a lot of pasture there are crops, not a lot of timber, not a lot of like, there aren't a lot of travel corridors. It's not a lot of those where it's like, oh, well, there's there's a creek drainage here, wooded down here, the deer are all funneling through that. There are some creek drainages full of trees, 
but the deer don't funnel down those. No, no. During the daylight. Yeah. You just don't, you can't, maybe in the rut occasionally. And, and you'd ran cameras here, but this was the first fall where you'd, where you'd ran cameras like through hunting season. Um, yes. And, and in the past, we just threw a couple random cameras that we've had a while up there. And it's like, oh, oh, look at this. That's pretty cool. But we never put a lot of faith into it. And this year was the first year we threw four Cuddy Link cameras up there. And we're like, let's just see what's moving. And it gave us pretty good intel of, oh, huh, most of these deer, doesn't matter where we got them, they're after dark. And sometimes it's midnight. And it's like, yeah. that's, that's, I mean... How many times do we look at pictures of deer, especially big deer, after dark? I mean, it's a pretty common thing. I don't, I don't know that we hardly had any during the day. No, almost none. And I know there's a lot of guys that have dealt with that. And so it's just kind of like, okay. You know, and I think I told you one time, I said, you know, there's hunting close to the food. And then there's hunting pretty close to the food. I think we need to be like way, way, way off the food. And, yeah. and and the problem we run into on that place is what a lot of people run into is the way way off the food. A lot of times you can't get to. It's 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 the neighbor's place. Yeah, or it's somebody else's place. The places that you need to be hunting may not be within the property that you can hunt. Yep. And sometimes it's it's like there's a lot of the stuff in in like the area that that I killed this deer in. There's another guy that hunts till gun season yeah i mean it was when i called my buddy and was like hey has he done hunting yet because <laughs> i think this deer is moving through this and i was like yeah I think, yeah he's done hunting I'm like okay well i'm going to go in there yeah and I then mean, also it's... like and, and and this farm also has another guy that hunts another part of the farm and yeah. i remember being set up with great I mean, Matt and I were set up with great wind, great chances. We knew we, I think you'd seen a pretty good buck there a few nights before. It was super cold muzzleloader season, and we're set up waiting in orange, and the guy walks right across the field 200 yards in front of us, like looking at us like, huh, that's cool, but I'm going up here. And he walked straight where the deer were going to be coming from. Yeah. And it was just and like, what... are you kidding me, man? Don't be a jerk. Like – you you it's can kind see of one us of those here. Things for for people that you know, a lot of times people look at private land and and like turn their nose up at private ground. Like ah, it's easy hunting. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, there are places that are easy hunting, but some private land, there are places I'd rather hunt public. Oh, it's totally. easier hunting on public ground than the private because yeah. you're dealing with other hunters. You're dealing with with all sorts of obstacles that that get in the way that make the hunting so unpredictable. That's we've said it so many times about this farm. I love hunting it, but it can be frustrating because it's always changing, but yeah. it's, if you like a challenge, that's the thing. Part of it, it's the challenge of going up there where it's like, okay, if I can figure this out, get this. I mean, I told you where I killed the deer, they'd move cows into that pasture like two days before that. Yeah. Two days yeah. before I killed it, and that's what I remember you saying. You looked out there and was like, "That feels kind of grown up." And I'm like, "Yeah, that pasture hasn't had anything on it. That's why they're come, coming across it then." Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you think about it; it's ever changing, and it's not like a, some some public land like you'll have, 
where it's managed and there's quail and there's pheasant or whatever the case may be where you know if there's quail there's pheasant it's pretty good habitat this is a working cattle farm where it's really not great habitat and and the only thing that's saving grace is it's got food and because it has food and it's late season you know there's deer coming in it if they're anywhere in the neighborhood and i mean this is a testament if i go to where i believe those deer are bedded and I drop a pin on Onyx, then I go to our camera. It's it's a little over nine tenths of a mile straight line. Yeah, and, and I, I sat on that field. What was it? Two nights. Yeah. To see that there were a lot of does coming in yeah. right before dark. But that was it. Was kind of one of those where because it was kind of, it was before it was early December when I sat down there. Yeah. And it was like, all right, there's a lot of does coming here. If any of these like doe fawns are coming in to estrus, there's going to be bucks coming down and checking this stuff. There's enough does. There ought to be some bucks coming in here. But, and like the second time I hunted that field, I remember I got pinned down by, I was sitting in a dozer deck and got pinned down by a bunch of does. And raw, I mean, barely any light left to look through binoculars and see. And one of those deer that I would have shot came down to the field. Yeah. Like, all I could see was, that looks like a decent buck. And then we got it on camera. And it was like, yeah, that was that deer. He just, they don't come across the pasture until dark. Yep. And I think, I mean, that said it, but a lot of people can relate to that. Yep, I, I think so. And, and you know, whenever whenever you put that together, it was like uh, nocturnal deer. I mean, we're talking nocturnal deer. How do you hunt nocturnal deer? Probably... Yeah. You can say, well, we're pressuring him, or we did pressure him, or something's gone on. But really, we can say, find where they're at during daylight. Well, how, how many guys many, how do you think things? hunt deer? I would say, if if there was a way to estimate this, there's a lot of guys who hunt deer that are not living on their place, except for at night, because they're bedding somewhere else. Yeah. And, I, I mean, and, and that's why say, our clients have so much success with the bedding thickets because basically they turn and put this dense cover on their place that the, that the bucks want and boom, now they're on their place and they're like, this is amazing. It's like, yeah, you can plant all the food in the world, but if you don't have dense cover, they're not going to be in there during daylight. Well, how many times do you see that question posed on social media? I've got bucks, big bucks coming there. What can I, what feed can I put out or what can I plant to get them there during the daylight? Yeah. For sure. It's like if, they're, if they're bedding them, they're not going to make. Yep, absolutely. And 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 that's the problem that a lot of guys face. And and hopefully, by managing, go listen to the other two hundred podcasts we've done where there's where there's a where we're talking about how to make that cover. Um, then then you can. Then you can do it. You can you can have that cover, uh, and have those deer moving during daylight. But if you're not touching it, making that cover, and you're not doing anything other than planting crops, you're missing the boat. Yep. Yeah. I had done something while you were talking, and I, hopefully the people didn't notice. But I uh, your your port ended up coming undone. So uh, while I was talking, <laughs> nobody could hear you responding, but. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the name of the game on this place. And I, and I hope that we're starting to figure it out up here and hopefully more people can figure it out on their place. If, 
if you're hunting cattle farms, that's that's the thing. It's like, especially if the cows can get in the woods, you got to figure out where their dense cover is because that's where they're going to be. And it, the closer you can get to that, the better your chance at, at harvesting a deer is going to be. It's not plant. It's not more fertilizer. It's not more expensive seed. It's better cover. Yep. So, anyway, man, I, I appreciate you coming on. Congrats on the buck again. Um, deer season's officially over. Now it's habitat season. So you guys get ready to ramp up and and head over to our YouTube channel uh, and subscribe. Please support us over there um consulting season matt's on his way back from texas right now he should be home by now but that's what we're doing man it's it's habitat season consulting season so tag along each week guys as we bring more information more education and hopefully can help you avoid the speed bumps that we learned over the years and uh won't cost you a fortune either so uh we'll catch you next week yeah.